in the moment of temptation, right? The raging fire of desire is your flesh. The desire, you know, to make a condescending comment about a coworker, that's your flesh, right? To buy another pair of shoes you don't need, that's certainly your flesh, right? To, over, to overeat, right? To overdrink, it's your flesh, right? Or to lust, or to just ignore God altogether, that's your flesh at work. All of these desires are not actually the deepest, truest desires of your heart. Like they don't come from like the bedrock layer of your soul, but they get fed all the time. Like when you stop and think about like who you really want to be, the kind of life you want to live, the kind of family you want to create, oftentimes the desires that we feed don't correlate with the kind of people we want to become. And that's because oftentimes our strongest desires are not actually our deepest ones. And that our strongest desires most often correlate to the flesh and its need to be fed. And so there is this, there is this real need, I think, that for us as followers of Jesus especially, but for the culture as a whole to return back to some of our, our ancient understandings of the need to discipline the flesh and to bring it under control and to not just feed it however it, it wants or desires to be fed, but that happiness comes from disciplining these desires and bringing them under control. Hey, we are in a teaching series called The Three Enemies of the Soul, and uh, today we begin the middle section of this series uh, as we talk about our second great enemy, the flesh. Uh, and to do that, I want to um, start by uh, taking us back to a story from 1992 where journalist Walter Isaacson, who's gone on to be known as uh, one of our premier interviewers and biographers, uh, famously interviewed actor uh, Woody Allen for Time Magazine. Uh, the subject of the interview was Woody Allen's infamous affair with uh, Soon Yi Priven. If you're not familiar with this story, uh, or maybe it was a little bit before your time, Woody Allen uh, was in a years, had been in a years-long relationship with a woman named Mia Farrow, and uh, um, they'd been together like, like, a, like a really long time. And all of a sudden... Uh, you know, out of, really, really somewhat out of, out of nowhere, Mia Farrow gets this desire to, to adopt uh, a kid. And so she's, she's Woody Allen's girlfriend, and she decides she's going to adopt this, this young seven-year-old girl named Soon Yi from South Korea. Uh, Mia Farrow goes on and adopts like a few other children uh, from Vietnam. It's kind of like the original Angelina Jolie, uh, right, if you know that, that reference at all. Eventually, uh, what would happen is uh, Mia Farrow and uh, Woody Allen would even have a son together. So 15 years goes by or more, and uh, all of a sudden one day, uh, Mia Farrow discovers uh, through some photographs that her longtime uh, boyfriend has been having uh, a relationship with her oldest uh, adopted daughter, Soon Yi. You know, Allen's 56 years old, Soon Yi's 21. Uh, it's it's kind of kind of a problem. So. Um, just to be clear and to kind of, kind of, kind of revisit the relational dynamic here, okay? Um, Woody Allen has been dating Soon Yi's mom for many, many, many years, okay? And uh, um, even though they're not married, uh, he still has functionally operated as her stepdad for uh, a long, 
time. Now, this is, this is sort of a, a, just a crazy story. It gets weirder if you, I, I don't know if you should read it or not. It's a weird story. Uh, they, they actually go on and get married, uh, Woody Allen and Sunyi, and they have some kids. And it was, it was like a big, big deal back in, in the 90s. So in this interview, um, which, which uh, t- you know, uh, between Isaacson and, and Woody Allen, um, it, it's an interesting case study on the human condition, by the way. Um, in this, in this interview, Isaacson, over and over again, he persistently tries to get Woody Allen to uh, admit some level of regret, to give some type of an apology, or to, to acknowledge you know, some level of moral uncertainty you know, regarding his actions. But in this interview, Woody Allen refuses to admit that he's done anything wrong. And so at the end of the interview, Isaacson finally just asks him this question. He says, so why did you do it? And it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty powerful moment because uh, Woody Allen pauses, and then he finally looks up at Isaacson and he offers that iconic line. He says, well, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. This off-the-cuff saying from an interview, you know, 30 years ago that has become, you know, well-known, it's entered the lexicon of the English language, um, it, 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 it is, you know... Um, become so iconic, you know, if you will, has entered not only the vernacular, but I would say also, you know, the belief system of our generation. It's become a kind of self-perpetuating justification for, you know, just about anything we want to do. It's become a type of get-out-of-jail-free card for behavior that falls outside the lines of moral tradition. And yet, even though it's become very popular and people understand this phrase, like very few people realize you know, the origin story for this phrase, that the heart wants what it wants. As we continue in our teaching series today on the three enemies of the soul, I think that this story of, of Woody Allen is a, is, is a fascinating uh, illustration for us for where we're going to be um, looking uh, and studying over the next couple of weeks, uh, the, th- the, 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 the second enemy of the soul, or what the New Testament writers, you know, commonly referred to as the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, he says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. And so in this series, we've spent the first part uh, learning about our first enemy, the devil, and how he traffics in deceptive lies. Next up is the flesh. And we're going to be talking specifically about how the flesh is one of our great enemies for our soul. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus in verses 1 through 3. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so this, this, this right here, this, uh, this section of Scripture is where early followers of Jesus really picked up the framework for the three enemies of the soul. If you, if you look at it again, I mean, it, it, says, it says, in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, it's one of the enemies of the soul, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's referring to the devil, one of the, uh, the other enemies uh, of, of the soul. And in verse 3, all of us who lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's another enemy of the soul. So, you know, this has existed a long time. This is, this is you know, ancient in terms of Christians understanding that there are these enemies to our soul that we need to understand and we need to guard against. The first Christians were wide awake in their understanding that our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? That it's not against, you know, Republicans and Democrats, but that it is a fight that is against a far more insidious evil. The word that the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament frequently use over and over again to describe the disordered desires of our inner person is the flesh. And this might sound a bit strange to us today. It certainly sounds strange to those outside of this room or those outside of Christianity to talk about the flesh being an enemy of our soul. And, and so we have to understand, like, what exactly are they talking about here? Because, you know, um, it, it, this is a pretty foreign concept for people outside of, of, of Christianity, for people in, in the world to, to think about our flesh being an enemy. And so what, is it, what, is, what, what does Paul mean? What, what do the writers of the New Testament mean? What are they getting at? So the Greek word used in the New Testament for flesh is this word sarx. Sarx is the transliteration of that Greek word. It means uh, the material which covers bones. So it's the flesh, right? It's the flesh. Now, similar to many English words, this word has more than one meaning. This little Greek word has more than one meaning. You know how that is within our own language. Like there are words that you can use uh, for, for different situations, and it'll mean different things. Well, that's true of this little Greek word as well. So I want to kind of explain to you how it is used in, in certain places differently and then tell you how we're going to uh, use it uh, today. So uh, this, this little Greek word, sarx, can just simply mean the body. It can mean the body if you want to throw that up there on the screen. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes these words, and he says the two will become one flesh. They're at the end, and then, and then uh, it's what's referring to the physical body. There is a plural use for this Greek word, sarx, in 1 Peter 1.21. Uh, it says all people here, or all flesh, right? It's the same exact word right there for people is the word sarx, all flesh are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Some of you might be familiar with like Acts chapter two, uh, where it says, you know, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, right? Meaning all people, it's the same word there, sarks. And so um, what we have here is, is a usage of this word to really refer to, you know, um, like, like the body or to refer to humanity. Uh, and so when it's used in this sense, it's not really a bad thing at all, much less an enemy, right? It's not something to really guard against. It's just a word for our physical bodies or, or uh, our physicality as human beings. There's a second usage for this word uh, that we see in the New Testament as well, and it's, it's to describe one's ethnicity, to describe one's ethnicity. Uh, Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul uh, uses it this way. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, Sarks right there, no confidence in the flesh. So in context, Paul is writing here about how his Jewishness doesn't necessarily give him a leg up in the kingdom of God. Right? He, he's combating a form of Jewish supremacy that was common in the Philippian church. And so when Sarks is used here in, in this scripture and in other places, it simply just means your ethnicity. It, it, it means your racial, cultural, and or national identity or Story. So we see that it can be used a, a number of different ways in the New Testament. 
Uh, it can be used to describe one's physical body. It can be used to, re- to describe you know, humanity or the human race and also to describe one's ethnicity. But there is, as I'm sure you're aware, there is a third me- and final meaning uh, for this little Greek word. Uh, and and, and uh, we see this all throughout the New Testament that this Greek word uh, is used to describe uh, your sinful passions and desires. So what we're talking about in this series, when we talk about the, you know, the devil, the flesh, and, and the world, we're not talking about the body, we're not talking about one's ethnicity, and we're not talking about humanity. We are talking uh, uh, about our sinful desires that exist within us that are fighting every day to be fed, fighting every single day to be fed. So let's define the flesh as the second enemy of our soul this way if you're taking notes. The flesh is the sinful appetite in all of us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. Okay? It is the sinful appetite in all of us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. So many of us think of the flesh as involving only things like, you know, lust and gluttony or greed. And I would tell you that it definitely is those things, all right? But the truth is that each of us experiences all kinds of desires each day that pulls us towards the flesh. Don't you, don't you understand that? You notice that? You experience that? Maybe it's this deep desire to, to have you know, more personal a time away from our demands and our responsibilities to just sort of you know, let loose and get away from it all, you know, the rat race. Maybe, maybe it's, it's like you know, the, the luxury SUV or just having a bowl of ice cream, you know, like at the end of the day before, before bed. Whether we realize it or not, our hearts are continuously overflowing with desires and longings that compete with each other. Oftentimes, these desires even contradict one another. Um, and so what we're talking about you know, today, specifically when we're talking about the flesh, we're talking about what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2-3, which, which I've already mentioned, but where he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, right? The, the cravings of our flesh and following its, its desires and thoughts. And so Paul is referring to the animalistic cravings of our body apart from God, right? The, the flesh, the animalistic cravings. Uh, Romans 7, 5, he writes and, and says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Okay, and then along these same lines, uh, the Apostle Peter later defines the flesh as corrupt desires in 2 Peter 2.10. says this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh. All right? Peter also writes that the corruption in the world is caused by these evil desires. It says in uh, 2 Peter 1.4, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So Peter's writing here about how there is this other way, right? That in Jesus, we have the opportunity to kind of to step into a, a new nature where we're not defined by our flesh and we're not dis- defined by our sinful desires. There is this divine nature we take on as, as followers of Jesus, as those who are part of the way. And, and, and yet, um, uh, it, it, and, and so what it is is like this opportunity to sort of escape out of the corruption in the world that's caused by the flesh, that's caused by the evil desires. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is a, a you know, very famous, well-known uh, theologian and pastor, he's passed away in the last few years, but he's the author of uh, the Message Translation, if you've ever used that. This is how he uh, describes the flesh. He says, the flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. 
So basically what he's getting at here is he's saying that the flesh is our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, all right? Especially pertaining to sensuality or sexuality, but also um, uh, to, to pleasure in general. That's really, really what this is about, as well as our instincts for survival, domination, and need for control. And man, all of these desires exist and live in every single one of us. And yet, in spite of the humanistic atmosphere <laughs> that is all around us, constantly telling us that we're good, I think that we all know that we have these desires within us that we don't necessarily know what to do with. We all know, if you're taking notes, we, we all know that we're not always as good as we try to tell ourselves we are. Like, we just know that. Like, like you know yourself better than anybody, right? You know, and I know. There are, there are these things uh, that exist in us that we're not always as good as we try to tell ourselves we are. No matter how much we try to tell ourselves how good we are, we know that there are some not-so-good things that exist in our inner lives, right? Our inner thoughts and ideas and motives. The New Testament, especially, like, it is incredibly open about the dark underbelly of the human heart, you know? Like, like it re- talks about it over and over and over again. The New Testament writers refer to this inner tug of war between the spirit and the flesh. And, and the, the New Testament writers seem to recognize this invisible but very real war raging on the battlefield of, de- of desire. And so you, you see Paul talk about this and address us. You see you know, Peter talk about this and address us. Uh, John talks about this, you know, this idea of this inner uh, tug of war between us, this war that exists between the spirit and the flesh. And yet, What's interesting is that this is not an idea that is like unique to Christianity. This is something that is true of like humanity and it's existed like from the beginning, right? Five centuries before the Apostle Paul wrote these words, uh, Buddha, of all, (laughs) wrote these words. Uh, He says, In the days gone by, this mind of mine used to stray wherever selfish desire or lust or pleasure would lead it. Today, this mind does not stray and is under the harmony of control, even as a wild elephant is under or is controlled by the trainer. Now, just just to be, I'm not um, someone who typically quotes Buddha, but uh, it's it's what I'm trying to help you see is like this issue of this inner tug of war, you know, between between the flesh and the spirit, between desire and, and spirit is something that exists outside of Christianity. It's not just unique to us. This is something that is true of all humanity. Around the same time of, of Buddha, Plato used the word picture of a chariot driver with two horses tied together, each fighting for domination. So think of these, these two horses trying to, to pull this chariot and and they're each wanting to go one way and one is trying to, to, to dominate the other to get it to go in the direction it wants to go. It's this picture of this, this animal that is powerful and, and very difficult to bring under control. Some Jewish rabbis in the ancient Near East would teach that each one of us has not one but two souls, both waging war against each other from within a person's mind, each one wishing and desiring to rule over that person completely. So Rabbi Zalman called them our animal soul and our divine soul. Okay, now we don't, we don't teach this, right? We don't teach... Uh, that, that we have two souls, we have one, but we do teach this idea of this inner war, this inner struggle between like, like uh, these desires within us, between the spirit and the flesh. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt simply called the flesh-driven part of our brain that is seeking pleasure the animal self. The animal self. Well, here's the problem. 
if you're taking notes this morning. Here's the problem. Pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. Have you ever noticed that? Pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. Pleasure is all about dopamine. Happiness is all about serotonin. Pleasure is about the next hit to feel good in the moment. Happiness is about contentment over the long haul. Right? It's this sense of, of, of my life being rich and satisfying as it is. So, you know, pleasure is all about want, whereas happiness is all about having freedom from want. So what we know as we look at, like, like the full, like, scope of humanity, and we look at all these different, like, you know, um, uh, civilizations, and we look at how, how, you know, people have lived throughout time, we understand that happiness typically has come as a result of disciplining desire, not just letting it free to, to roam about as it, as it, as it chooses, Right? That happiness comes as a result of disciplining desires in every area of life, whether it is, it is you know, sex or dieting or money or whatever it is. Like, we know this now, that, like, you can't just let these things do whatever they want. They have to be disciplined, and that brings along happiness. So happiness or the good life is what happens after you have disciplined your desires. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, tragically, this ancient idea of disciplining your desires which we understand as central to the way of Jesus, has become a bit of a foreign concept in the modern West. Wouldn't you agree? Let me give you a little bit of history on how this has shifted and changed because there was a time when it was really common. Like, we don't just let everything happen. We don't just, like, give in to all of our desires. Like, no, we discipline these things to, to like, a greater end, to, to a more, more uh, uh, preferred end. But now in the modern West, like, that is just not how, how people think. So the history on this, philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, uh, A Secular Age, which is a book that I've, I've, I've referenced many times in the last couple years, he writes in this book about how the Western culture has radically changed from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. And what he's getting at in his book was this idea that in past years as a society, we used to live by, you know, whatever uh, external authority structures told us, uh, told us to do. You know, so whether that is like the Bible, whether that is God, whether that is tradition, whether that is, you know, your parents or, or leaders of some sort, like as a society, we used to live, you know, with these sort of guardrails constructed by external authority structures, right, telling us how to live. But then he says what has happened for, for those in the West, uh, most, most in the West live from whatever their internal uh, authentic self wants to do. That's, that's been the shift, that's been the change, where there used to be these, these external checks and balances, these external things to kind of keep you from like, driving off the cliff and doing things you're really going to regret, uh, you know, uh, but, but maybe are, are, are too uh, you know, nearsighted to, to see that right now. And we've transitioned to a culture that, that, that is all about sort of listening to the internal authentic self. Like, what do you want to do? Whatever is good for you, then you go ahead and do just that. So the primary cause for this dramatic change in our culture, Charles Taylor talks about, is, um, has been Sigmund Freud's findings around human desire. Now, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV. But just about every person I've ever talked to about Freud and any book I've ever read about Freud all agrees that he pretty much got everything wrong, right? Everything wrong. And yet, what is interesting about that is that so many of his ideas have gone on to create the cultural environment of our modern day. Prior to Freud, most people in the West thought of desire through the lens of 4th century philosopher Augustine, 
whether they realized it or not, Augustine's ideas about desire gave much shape to Western culture for over a thousand years. If you're taking notes, according to Augustine, the basic problem of the human condition is that of disordered desires or loves. Like this is something that was understood for such a long time, right? That the basic problem with humanity is we have like these disordered desires or this, these disordered loves and we've got we've to discipline them. In his view, Augustine felt that the problem of the human condition isn't that we don't love, it's that we love either the wrong things or the right things in the wrong order. So, so a few examples. Like he, so it's not necessarily bad to love your job, but it is bad to love your job more than you love like, your teenage son, right? Like that's a disordered love. Uh, it's a disordered love that would create problems for both you and your child, right? Another example is that, you know, it's, it's not... It's not bad to love your child. Like I think, I think it's maybe good for some of you parents to know that. It's not bad for you to love your child. Um, but what if you love your child more than you love God? Right? That's a disordered love. That's a disordered desire that will deform how you relate to both. It's also not uh, a bad, a bad to, to love sex. God himself created us as sexual beings, but... Here's the deal, when sex becomes a sort of pseudo-God that we look to for identity, which many do, or for belonging in a very, very specific community, or for satisfaction in life, it has become a disordered love, okay? So in the pre-Freud West, right, human flourishing was all about saying yes to the right desires, the higher desires for love, and saying no to the lower desires, the more base-level animalistic, more appetite-driven kinds of desires. You would then navigate your desires by these guardrails or these mental maps, which Pastor Josh has mentioned you know, a few weeks ago, and we dove into what those really are. These mental maps that were handed down to you by a trusted external authority source, ideally Jesus himself, right? In order to not repeat the mistakes of previous generations. So Freud's take, right, it was radically different it was a complete contrast to how culture had always understood human desire. Freud taught that our most important desire is our libido, right? Which he defined as not just sexual desire, but desire for pleasure as a whole. And that the reason you're unhappy in life is because other people are telling you that there's things you can't do, right? That, that if you just, just give in to your desire, if you just you know, do what makes you happy, the reason you're unhappy is because you're living within the construct of, of all of these like external authorities, you know. Uh, and, and so uh, there were, you know, in, in his teachings, there were these repressive external authority structures. And so he's, he, he was telling people, like, don't follow those. Instead, determine from within yourself, like, what is right for you. Okay. Now, like I mentioned already, like most people I've ever talked to talk about how Freud got everything wrong, just about, Right? But what's interesting is we see his ideas show up everywhere in culture, everywhere, like, like that iconic line that the heart wants what it wants from Woody Allen 30 years ago. Or, or we hear it in, in these ideas like follow your heart or you do you or speak your truth or be true to yourself. If you're taking notes this morning, as your heart wrestles with many different competing desires, the culture at large is telling you to just be true to yourself, 
to live out your own truth, reject the agendas of others, and follow your heart. Much of Western culture perpetuates the idea that your inner or your internal desires are the best roadmap to live the good life and that you should always get what you want because you know you deserve it, right? This, I mean, this may sound crazy, and this may sound like something you don't agree with, but you have to understand that like, this is the way much of the world, especially in the West, like, lives and operates and understands that like, like what you desire, your internal desires are the best roadmap for you. So follow your heart or follow your desires. Some of you might be familiar with, uh, with Hamlet, famous play written by Shakespeare. And if you're familiar with the play Hamlet, then you may remember one of the characters named Polonius in this play, he says a very, very famous line, which I have for you here on the screen. He says this, he says, this above all, to thine own self be true. This above all, to thine own self be true. In other words, Polonius is saying, be true to yourself, right? Just be true to yourself. You determine what is true for you. You define what is true. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Hamlet, you may remember that in this play, who, who was Polonius? He was the fool. He was the fool in the play. So in the, it's the fool in this play who was telling everyone to live by the mantra, be true to yourself. And yet so many people mouth this every single day as if it is gospel. Most people assume, and maybe some of us in here, most people assume that the way to a happy, flourishing life is to follow our hearts. And that's just not true. Back to Freud for just a moment, and then, then I'll try to, to make sense of some of this. Back to Freud. In the past, it was the responsibility of all people to restrain the desires of their flesh. Today, it's the right of all people to follow the desires of their authentic self. That's, that's how it works. So happiness has become about feeling good, not about being good. The good life has become about getting what we want, not becoming the kind of people who truly do good things and truly want good things. And so what's interesting, let me help you, help you see this. The self, okay, not, not God or the scriptures, but the self has become the new place of authority in Western culture. Like, like you determine it from within yourself. Again, there's not these external authority structures anymore that, that we should listen to or that we all should listen to. Ones that, that are true for everyone. Maybe there is some truth in them, but you get to determine if it's true or not. Self has become the new God. It's become the new spiritual authority or the new morality even. Robert C. Roberts, the, a theologian, uh, he says these, uh, the, these uh, really interesting words. He says, we have been led to feel that the self is sacro uh, sacrosanct just as in an earlier time it was thought never fitting to deny God, so now it seems never right to deny oneself. So in a worldview, this is what he's saying, so in a worldview where desire is a sacrosanct or too important or too valuable to be interfered with, the ultimate sin in culture is to not follow your heart. Cornelius Platega, another theologian, he says, in such a culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. Okay, so this is kind of where we're at. This is sort of where, like, the world has gone. And, like, and, and I, think, I think, you know, for any of you who have been paying attention over the last, you know, uh, you know, several decades, we have seen just a dramatic shift towards this. 
right? Even in, in, in many of our lifetimes, we have seen how much it has, it has moved from uh, a place that was much more tolerable to a place that just feels insane. And yet this is the, 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 the message that is accepted by the vast majority in uh, the dominant culture today. The problem with it, the problem with it, and where, where most people don't, don't stop to think long enough about this is like, is, 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 you know, which self are we supposed to follow? Or like, or like, which heart are we supposed to follow? Which desire are we supposed to follow? Psychologist David Benner in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, he talks about the complexity of desire that exists in each of us. How we have all sorts of desires and that, and that many of them even contradict each other. So when people tell you to follow your heart, like which heart are they telling you to follow? You know? And what do you do when your heart is fickle? <laughs> like, what do you do when your desires change by the hour or they fluctuate with your mood? This is what David Bennett calls a war of loves in his book by the same name. It's a fantastic book, by the way. Um, if you have any interest in, in uh, you know, hearing a man tell a story about how he was a gay activist and found Jesus, it's called A War of Loves. But he talks about in this book like, this, like, like what really the New Testament writers have, have uh, talked about for a very long time. You know, this, this internal struggle, this internal tug of war between, uh, you know, desire for the spirit and desire for the flesh. And if you're going to follow your heart, like, like which heart really are you going to follow? Which desire in the moment is the one worth pursuing? And, and so you can see all sorts of problems. One, one, one of the classic examples of how we see the war of loves, like, like show up in, in a given day or in a given week is like at the grocery store checkout line, Right? I mean, you stand in line to check out, and, and man, those, those checkout lines, they are carefully constructed, right, to, to, to pull you in one direction or the other. I, you know, you walk through one of those, those lines, and on one side you see, like, like, all these magazines and all these publications about, you know, getting fit, like, dieting, like, eating right, like, which is a legitimate desire. I think a lot of us probably have, like, you know, like, like, like whether or not we live by those desires or not, like, it pulls on a desire that we desire to, to look better and feel better and all of those things. And then on the other side of, of the checkout line is what? Like, it's all the junk food. It's all the candy, right? And so there is this, like, war of, of loves, like, that people experience every single time they go through the checkout line at the grocery store, this pulling in one direction over the other. And the reason why, like, that's, that's, that's important to, to understand is, is, uh, is this thought right here. Again, if you're taking notes, I think what can be easy to miss within the modern view of things is that our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. So that's, that's the flesh, the flesh, like, like it, 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 like, rears its, its ugly head. Like, it, 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 like it, it's, like, on fire sometimes. It just needs to be fed. And oftentimes, it presents as a, the strongest desire in the moment. But, but you know, what, what, what is often the case is that the strongest desire is not the greatest desire. That, the, that people actually, like, like, give in to the strongest desire at times and, and um, and yet, when, when it's all said and done and regret begins to set in, like, they find that, man, that decision or that moment or what they did, like, it, man, it, it was so far from what they actually really wanted out of life. Think about it. In the moment of temptation, right, the raging fire of desire is your flesh. The desire, you know, to make a condescending comment about a coworker, that's your flesh, Right? To buy another pair of shoes you don't need. That's certainly your flesh, right? To, over, to overeat, 
right? To overdrink your flesh, right? Or to lust or to just ignore God altogether. That's your flesh at work. All of these desires are not actually the deepest, truest desires of your heart. Like they don't come from like the bedrock layer of your soul, but they get fed all the time. Like when you stop and think about like who you really want to be, the kind of life you want to live, the kind of family you want to create, oftentimes the desires that we feed don't correlate with the kind of people we want to become. And that's because oftentimes our strongest desires are not actually our deepest ones. And that our strongest desires most often correlate to the flesh and its need to be fed. And so there is this, there is this real need, I think, that, that for us as followers of Jesus especially, but for the culture as a whole to return back to some of our, our ancient understandings of the need to discipline the flesh and to bring it under control and to not just feed it however it, it wants or desires to be fed, but that happiness comes from disciplining these desires and bringing them under control. You know, for all the talk about how, how humans are animals, how morality is a social construct, and how we need to be true to ourselves, it still is generally agreed upon that to live a good life, you must become a good person, right? This is an interesting thought. Like there's still this, this, like, this, 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 this widespread understanding, like if you wanna live a good life, you gotta, you gotta do good things, you gotta be a good person. Like, like, like even though, even though the, the message, like the, under, the undercurrent is, you know, do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, there is this, there's this understanding that like, like to, to be good, you have to do good. If you're taking notes, our deepest desires are often sabotaged by the strongest, by the stronger surface level desires of our flesh. Our deepest desires are often sabotaged by the stronger surface level desires of our flesh. You ever noticed that? You ever felt that? You have a story maybe in your mind you're thinking right now of, of how, you know, uh, the thing you wanted most was sabotaged by something, you know, that, that uh, you just wanted in the moment. Maybe you were like saving for something, right? You ever had buyer's remorse? That's, that's basically what this is talking about. You ever had buyer's remorse on something maybe more significant than just spending a little bit of money? I think like a lot of people do, right? There's a lot of stories probably in this room. I've got my own of like buyer's remorse. Like, shoot, wish I wouldn't have done that. Where like your, your strongest desire, it, do, it doesn't correlate to like your deepest desire. And this is why like Paul and the writers of the New Testament are telling us over and over again to be careful to not just live by the flesh, but to live by the spirit, right? To, to, to crucify or to deny the flesh, to not let this thing grow out of control, to be fed and fed and fed like a wild animal because it will take you down a path you don't want to go. It's an enemy and it wants to kill you, right? You guys want to go ahead. So here's, here's what I find so interesting. The widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them, right? But in reality, being true to yourself is some of the worst advice you could have ever been given. It's not about being true to yourself, right? It's about being, it's about being surrendered to the kingship of Jesus, right? It's about, it's about sacrificing and laying down our desires so that the desires that he has for us are the ones that can win out. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, Jesus says these very, very, very famous words. And 
I love them. He says, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So, so you know, like the way of the world is this idea of like self-fulfillment and self-actualization and like you do you and, and you know, kind of kind of find your truth. And, and the way of Jesus is, is different. The way of Jesus is self-denial. The way of Jesus is, is, is entirely different. It's entirely upside down from the way of the world. It's, it's understanding, like, first and foremost, that our desires are not always desires that are beneficial to the outcomes that we are looking for. And that our desires need to be held in check. Our desires need to be filtered through, you know, the the life and the message of Jesus. I mean, the entire Sermon on the Mount, right, is Jesus basically casting this enormous filter on how humans ought to live their life in the kingdom of God. That like, you shouldn't just do every single thing you want to do. You shouldn't just feed your flesh. You shouldn't just say whatever you want to say, right? That there has to be this other way that's upside down to the message of culture, this idea of, of living our lives as Jesus would. And so to do that, that means I'm going to have to deny myself. Because, there, man, there are so many times where, like, desire just wants to take over. And desire just wants to be fed. Desire just wants to, to be allowed to, to sort of, you know, freely roam about however it wants. But to be like the people of God and to be a Christian woman and a Christian man in this place, like, we have to understand how, how like, incredibly toxic that is for us and our families. And we have to bring them under control. We have to discipline our desires. We have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. John Mark Comer says these words. He says, giving in to the the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom and life as many people assume, but instead to slavery. And in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. And like, this is the story. Like, this is, this is like, there is a, there is a, great, a greater message in culture. But like, the sub-message, the, 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 the reality to that message that never gets any airtime is that as people have given themselves over to their desires, most of them, if not all of them, have become enslaved by those very same things. And this is why the writers of the New Testament are so clear. This is why Jesus is clear himself, that we have to have boundaries we have to say no. There has to be things in our life that we, that we say no to, that we refuse to give ourselves over to, that we refuse to even, you know, uh, uh, I, I would say even like, even laugh about, even entertain as, as, as funny or humorous. Things that have the, the ability to, to destroy your life are things that, you know, I, I, I just don't really, really find all that funny. You know, things that I have seen destroy other people's lives are things that I just don't find all that humorous. And so we, we just live differently, right? We say no to the flesh. We deny it. We crucify it. Think about, think about that picture. Think about that word image, right? To, to crucify something, like we know what that looks like. We have so many mental images of that, like in, in the scriptures, you know, as we read the life of Jesus over and over again. And think about the the excruciating agony like that he went through. Think about the crucifixion of the Son of God on the cross 
And it's the same type of picture he gives us when it comes to our flesh. Jesus is essentially saying here in Matthew that if you want to follow me, like, that's cool, let's do it. Let's all just go get, our, get a cross and like, and like climb up on that thing and get crucified together because that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? And yet so many people want to teach that to say no to your flesh and to say no to your desires is repressive and that it's, 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 it's you know, it, it leads you down a life of not being fulfilled and not being happy and it's just dead wrong. The way of Jesus is life. And it's, it's not just like, 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 like a, a better life, it is the life. It's the life that is life, Scripture teaches us. And so we cannot just live life like everybody else lives and expect the outcome that Jesus talks about in the Scriptures. We have to do it differently. We have to say no. We have to, we have to actively understand that there is a flesh side to us that is not redeemed. A flesh side that is, that, is, that, is, that is still fallen. It still has an evil nature to it, to it and, and it can't be trusted. It can't be trusted, right? I mean, I mean, like, Jeremiah talks about the heart being, like, wicked and deceptive and how it, when it's fed, like, it, it, can, it can lead us down paths that, like, will destroy our lives, and yet the message is follow your heart. Like, man, that's not what the Scriptures teach, you know? And so we have to understand this. We have to bring this under... Uh, control. We have, to, we have to take this under the microscope and we have to evaluate like our own lives and go, man, like where am I giving myself over to desire? Where am I refusing to say no? Or where am I just like listening to the narrative that says like, I, man, I, I, I can do this. Like I'm, I'm an adult. Like I can, I can do this. Like I have, I have every right to say yes to these things. Listen, you have a very real enemy and it's the flesh and it wants to get you like to believe those, those lies and to believe those messages so that, so that ultimately it can, it, can, it can sabotage your relationship with Jesus and take you to an experience in this world and in this life that, man, you never, you never signed up for and you never thought uh, would happen or come your way. Would you stand for a moment? Would you bow your heads? Just want to give you an opportunity here uh, before we dismiss, uh, or you can have a moment just with you and the Lord. I want you just to kind of quiet out the distractions. I want you just to kind of push those out for a moment and just settle yourself before the Lord. And just say, God, is there anything in me? Is there anywhere in me that my flesh is being satisfied way too much and way too often? And is there something as it pertains to my flesh that needs to be crucified, uh, that needs to be denied? And will you just let right now, like the, the searchlight, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit, just help, help you see things that maybe you struggle to see? Just ask him to show you right now. Ask him to show you where your flesh just gets out of control and sort of rages and needs to be fed. And let God kind of bring you into a place right now of being willing to even lay those down so that you can experience life differently than most. If it's you today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there are some things as it pertains to my flesh that gotta go. Some things I know that I have been feeding for far too long and it's gotta go. And I just need the Holy Spirit to give me strength there today. Can I just see your hand? 
Can I just pray over you? Can I just bring encouragement over you today? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's just hands all over, guys. It's just like, I think all of us probably could do this and raise our hand and not be lying, but Holy Spirit, I ask that you come right now and that you just do a deep work in my brothers and sisters here this morning who are just uh, courageously acknowledging that there are some areas as it pertains to their flesh that are out of control, some things that are just wild, that if, if left unattended to much longer, it has the power and the ability to just wreak some havoc in their life. And so, Lord, we pray that this would be a cutoff moment, a time of drawing a line in the sand, a time of saying, like, enough is enough, no more. And I pray, God, that you would, you would uh, rise us up uh, to be people who, who stand firm on your word and walk by the Spirit. I thank you for the example in, in, in the New Testament of, of uh, how to say no to the flesh is to be people who walk in the Spirit. And so, Lord, would you teach us how to do this? Would you teach us how to say no to the things that are so temporary, the things that just seem like, uh, like maybe it's worth it, but in the end there's buyer's remorse. So, God, I ask now for a shifting and a change just in the atmosphere of our life. Uh, a refusal to go, to go back to that, that old familiar friend called the flesh and instead a crucifixion right now of those, of those desires so that we can live the life that you ultimately uh, bled and died for uh, that we could experience here uh, in the here and now, God. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.